turn with me this morning to James chapter 4. We'll be finishing James chapter 4 uh, by looking at verses 13 to 17, James 4, 13 to 17. And as you turn there, how much, how much do you control the future? Or I should rather ask, how much do you think you control the future? Because we all have certain, some measure of madness in thinking that we can ensure certain outcomes by doing certain things. And actually, that, that phraseology there, that way of thinking, uh, that's the same thinking that someone who has OCD has, right? That they can uh, avert an evil outcome by performing some kind of obsessive ritual, some kind of compu- compulsive ritual. Uh, they can avoid some great evil. Uh, but we all think that way. Not just the one who has OCD, but we all think that way. We think if we do certain things, we'll have our desired outcome. Uh, and there is some truth to the reality that what we do today matters. What we do today matters. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 4 tells us. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says... The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. And what what are we to arrive at from there, right? If we never plow, if we never sow the seed, if we never water it, maintain it, fertilize it, guess what? We're not going to harvest anything. right? What we do today matters. Because if we don't do anything today... We can't expect any results tomorrow. Uh, We cannot expect to reap a harvest of those things we have not sown. How we approach our spiritual growth today matters for what our faith will look like tomorrow. And understand, like, here's one of the outcomes of that. If we're not in a period of testing, uh, the processes we put in place now the, the time we spend in prayer, the time we spend in the word, the time we spend with other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, that'll all impact when it comes to the day of testing. We'll be able to stand firm in the day of testing if we're practicing standing firm today. Right? So what we do today matters. What we do about our spiritual growth today matters. What we do about our relationship with our spouse today matters for what that relationship will look like tomorrow if we don't do anything if we leave uh, things undone we can't expect a healthy relationship tomorrow right what we do today matters the sluggard does not plow in the autumn he will seek at harvest and have nothing however we are foolish to think that we control our future. We are foolish to think that we control our future. For instance, we could do nothing but eat vegetables and still die of a heart attack. There are certainly plenty of healthy people out there uh, who do plenty of cardiac exercises and still have cardiac arrest. Uh, Though that, of course, is not an excuse for eating like a trash panda, okay, like a raccoon. We can plan and purpose all we want in our business, right? We could have a a wonderful 5-year, 10-year, 15-year business plan, and the economy could change. Our health could change, or there's any other number, several of other factors that could uh, change that we have no control of. And so James, today in our passage, confronts those Christians who think they control their own destiny by instructing believers that our lives are mists in the hand of God. Our lives are mists in the hand of God. So let's turn to your passage and let's listen to what our focus should be on. So this is from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And this is the word of the Lord. Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is not the first time that James has addressed the issue of wealth in this letter. Uh, Back in chapter 2, for instance, we saw this issue when it came to uh, some of the churches, some within the church giving priority and prominence to those who were rich, showing partiality to those who are well off. And we determined in that context that the rich person there is likely a believer, the rich and the poor Uh, are likely believers, maybe new believers in the church, uh, coming into the fellowship. Uh, But as we come to our passage today, we kind of have to ask the same question. Uh, Who is it that James is addressing here? And it seems to be a merchant class, right? They're going to trade and make a profit. Uh, So it's a well-off merchant class because not everybody can just get up and go to a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, right? Not everyone has that ability. Uh, some within the church, especially we know during this time, are basically living on subsistence, right? They're, they're barely getting by. Um, and we kind of get that idea, too, from the way James addresses the church. But we have to ask here, is this, is this merchant a Christian or a non-Christian? And commentators disagree here. Uh, some argue one or the other. Uh, I would agree with the, those that argue that this is likely a Christian, So James is addressing Christians here in this passage, and that contrasts especially with what we get to in chapter 5 when he addresses the rich, that those seem to be clearly non-Christians, non-Christian rich landowners in in that instant. Here we're talking about the Christian merchant class within the church. Uh, and just some of the reasoning behind that, the the language that he uses here uh, isn't as... uh, doesn't seem to be talking about condemnation as much as is discipline or correction, right? He's exhorting them and admonishing them. In the next chapter, what we'll, we'll see is he's, he's actually uh, pointing out their condemnation before God. So I think the, the level of language is distinct enough that we're, we're talking about a Christian here. But let's go to our passage and let's see first a mist's prophet, a mist's prophet verses 13 through 14 and he opens up and he says this time come now you who say and james is calling his readers to attention right this is something akin to now listen here right and probably about with that tone too now listen here and he's addressing those who believe they will have a good business venture right today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town spend a year there trade and make profit We're going here, there, we're going to buy and sell, we're going to make a profit. These are merchants who have a plan, right? It's not maybe, we don't see the details of the plan here, but you can imagine that those who would say this kind of thing have a plan, right? How do you make a profit? You got to know what buys and sells, high and low, right? You, You have to know those things. And so you can imagine that these are merchants who have a plan and they know what? That their plan is going to succeed. How do we know that? Because they say, we're going to make a profit. It's a foregone conclusion. These merchants are going to make it. They know what the market is like. They know what they're doing. Uh, they know where they're going. Right? They, they've done all the studies. They know they have it. And understand that while the immediate audience, right, is this Christian merchant class, the same applies to all the plans of mankind. You may not be a merchant, right? You may may not be a business owner, but we often express this same sentiment, uh, this same kind of sentiment, right? This statement is one of self-confidence. We will do this. We're going to do this. We're going to accomplish this. These merchants place the prowess of their ability above all else. And they consider that nothing could withstand their ability to make profit. And we may be guilty of that same kind of self-confidence in our plan making when we talk about our plans. And indeed, is this not the kind of self-confidence that the world tells us we should have? 
You can do anything you want. You can do anything you put your mind to. If you just reach for the stars, you'll at least hit the moon, right? Or something like that. Or you'll die in space of asphyxiation. I don't know. But No, maybe not. I don't think that's the meaning of that. But right there is there is this current in our culture that says that the the, the determining factor of our future is us. That the determining factor of your future is you. You determine your future. Uh, and understand that that's, that's their message, and yet even that message they kind of contradict because then they also say, well, what we need is more government, or sometimes less government, but normally it's we need more government, and that'll make your future secure. Uh, what we need is more education. If you have more education, that'll make your future secure, and so on. But right, the message is have self-confidence. Believe in yourself, and you will make profit. You'll do it. You'll arrive. You'll get there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you planning? And where is your confidence in your plans? James makes clear the problem with this sentiment, this self-confidence, this arrogance in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? And we have to pause there and say there's a little bit of a translation question here uh, because depending on your translation, you may have something different. For instance, the New American Standard says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. And the problem arises because in the Greek, there isn't punctuation. So the translator has to determine by context whether something is a statement or a question. And here it's a little bit ambiguous. But the reality is the same, whether you regard it as just a blank statement or a statement and a question. Right? You do not know what your life will be like. What is your life? Proverbs 27.1 tells us, Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The reality is this, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And as much as you may try to control all the variables you cannot. You don't know what your life will be like. You may wake up tomorrow and be sick. Right? That's something all of us have learned a little bit more acutely in the past few years as we've dealt with this virus. Is we may be fine one day and wake up the next day not feeling well. And then all of a sudden we're locked in our house. You don't know what your life is like. You may wake up tomorrow and feel well. You may not wake up at all tomorrow. You don't know what your life is like. You may, as some did in these past weeks in eastern Kentucky, wake up. I was reading one story. This lady was sleeping in her bed. She woke up to her bed floating in water. You don't know what your life is like. Brothers and sisters in Christ... You do not know because you are not God. And the problem with the self-confidence expressed by the merchants and perhaps by us in our own plans is that it discounts the possibility of our frailty and life's uncertainty. Now some points of clarification here so we don't get too rah-rah uh, anti-capitalists here. James is not arguing that it is sinful to make a profit. So let's understand that, right? James is not saying it's sinful to make a profit. We might conclude in his denunciation of the merchant self-confident that he is saying it's wrong to make a profit, but that's not what he is saying. That's not the case. The issue really is in their self-confidence. It's not the fact that they want to make a profit. It's the fact that they know they'll make a profit when they don't really know that, right? But that's their attitude. That's their mentality. And and that makes clear, especially as we look at verse 15 in the next verse, right? Because James redirects the merchants to consider the Lord. What is the Lord's will in this? Also, James is not saying we throw planning out the window, 
Right, so this is not James saying, well, you should never plan anything because life is uncertain. Don't plan. No, that's not the solution he arrives at. Again, we see that in verse 15. That's the solution he arrives at. We'll get there. In the wisdom of the Bible, which James seems well familiar with, is clear in our need to make wise plans. For instance, one plan making that we see is King David. Uh, King David seeks to build a temple to the Lord, and he is told, no, he cannot because he has shed too much blood in war. He was a man of war. And so the task was given over to the next king, Solomon. And though David wasn't going to be the one to build the temple, he didn't just shrug his shoulders and say, okay, well, good luck, Solomon. No, what did he do? He planned. Now, we could look at First Chronicles 22, for instance, First Chronicles 22, verses 2 to 5. Listen to the way that David planned for the future, planned for the benefit of his son. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar tin- timbers without number, for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. You notice that there? And and actually we see later on when he goes to transfer the kingdom over to Solomon, he even gives Solomon blueprints that he has had drafted. Why does David do this? Well, he says there, right? My my son is young and inexperienced. He's going to have a lot on his plate to try and understand how to run a kingdom. And this temple that must be built to the Lord, it can't be something shabby. It can't be something that's going to fall down in two months. It needs to be something that will last. It needs to be something that will extol the glories of God. It needs to be something worthy of God. And yet we know nothing we can make is worthy of God. God doesn't need what we can make either, right? He's not in need of that. But David wants to honor the Lord. And he does that through planning. He may not be able to build the temple, but he's going to make sure his son Solomon has everything he needs to get started on the temple right away and to see it come to fruition. It's not a sin to plan, but it is a sin to plan when we think our plan is supreme, when we think our plan is the only thing that matters. What we do not realize in such arrogant self-planning, right? Planning, self-confidence, is that we are but mist. That's what James says here, right? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're vapors, right? We're the morning fog. As soon as the sun begins shining on it, what happens to it? It's gone. doesn't last. We are here briefly. Uh, Psalm 90 verses 10 through 12 psalm 90 verses 10 through 12 says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone and we fly away who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you so teach us to number our days and we may get a heart of wisdom or maybe as the way Jacob says to Pharaoh in Genesis 47.9, Genesis 47.9, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Right, our days are few and evil. And Jacob lived to be 130, and that doesn't seem few, few to us. But in comparison to uh, his uh, father's father, Abraham, right? Abraham lived something like 180. We go back to Methuselah, uh, who lived almost a millennia. And we're closer to what it says in the psalm today, right? 70 or reason of strength, 80. And that's missed 
It's vapor. Because what is 70 years in comparison to a millennia? Nothing. Right? Nothing. Next to nothing. What are 70 years in comparison to eternity? A dot. A speck. A mist of vapor. A fog. And so, uh, if we think that we can plan the future and we know what's going to happen, what are we? And why do we have such arrogant boasting? And let's see that next, a misboast, a misboast in verses 15 and 16. And James instructs them, instead of saying, right, and notice the difference in the language between verse 15 and verse 13. Verse 13 says, today or tomorrow, we will go. We're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade. We're going to make a profit. Notice the language in verse 15. Instead of we will go, it says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And let's just stop there and notice that. If the Lord wills, we will live. Not just if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live. That's the first thing, right? Even our life is dependent on the will of the Lord. When will you die? When the Lord wills. How long will you live? As the Lord wills. Especially in our culture. Listen, we are crazed with finding ways to extend our life, right? We do so through supplements and diets and fads. We do so through medicines and procedures and tinctures. And what do these amount to? Well, maybe prudence, right? There may be some prudence to it, some wisdom to it. Uh, Again, if we eat nothing but trash, we shouldn't expect a healthy life. But if we think we can take a pill and sustain our life, we forget who get it, who it is that gives us life. right? If we think we can take a pill and sustain our life, we forget who it is who gives us our life. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Our life is contingent upon the will of the Lord and our success in all things is contingent upon the Lord. Your ability to do this or that is dependent on the Lord. We need to understand this truth of Scripture. Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The will of God alone is sure. It is God's purposes only that will stand always every time. We may plan. We may purpose, but unless the Lord is with us, we will not stand. We need to remember Psalm 127. Psalm 127, 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Because he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you realize that? Unless the Lord is building the house, those who labor on it can labor all the day long, right? And we're probably not talking like a literal house here. We're talking a metaphorical house. We're talking about a person, a heritage, a a family. Although it applies as equally for a, a house itself. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If God has determined to destroy a city, it doesn't matter who is watching over it. It doesn't matter how many disaster preparedness plans they have in place. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do you realize that? And do you realize that that doesn't just apply to other people, but to you? And you can be anxious all you want. You can rise up early to try and succeed, to do everything you want. You can go to bed late at at night. You can eat the bread of anxious toil, working and, and, and suffering and trying all you might. 
but it amounts to nothing. Because anxious toil doesn't mean success. Because he gives to his beloved sleep. Unless the Lord is at work in it, it will surely fail. And understand, too, that these words that James says here, right? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That these words are not some kind of magical incantation. Right? They're not just something that we can append to our plan. I'm going to go do this today if the Lord wills. And then that's it. That's all I need to say. And then I, and then I got it. And then, it, then it'll happen. Right? No, the, these are uh, matters of our heart. Maybe sometimes we do verbalize that. Or maybe we don't verbalize it, but it's an attitude of our heart. Who are we relying upon in our planning? Who are we relying upon in seeing the future of what we want to come to fruition? Do we think in our planning that we are the final determining factor? Or do we always leave room for the Lord God to intrude in our plans? Do we acknowledge that God is the one who has control over our life and breath and movement? Or do we think that we are the final arbiters of these things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you lean on your own understanding? Or do you acknowledge Him in all your paths? Do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? As it is to express the kind of self-confidence that James is addressing in our passage is a misboast. It's an evil thing. Look at what he says in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Right? These merchants that James is addressing, they seemingly have tried to compartmentalize God, right? To, to say, well, I have my religion over here. I've got my religion over here, and it's nice, and it's fun, and yeah, I'm a Christian. But over here is my business, and I'm in control of this realm. God can have this realm, and I'm, and I'm in control of this realm, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to make a profit. I'm going to do this. But such is foolish, sinful, evil. Such is the way of the world. Such is not the way of the Christian. All right? We have to understand that as Christians, there is no compartmentalizing. God is sovereign over it all. Not just the religious part. Not just the Sunday morning part, but all of it. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12 about the rich who plans without consideration of the Lord. Listen to this from Luke 12, verses 16 through 21. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If you think you can make your own plans for your own purposes, what is your life? What are you? We'll see the significance of that passage even more as we look at the next part in chapter 5. But here I want us to recognize that in all things we need to consider What is God doing? And what does God want me to do? And if we would ask ourselves these questions, what is God doing? And what does God want me to do? In all our planning, in every aspect of our life, we would be better off. Christian, your life is no longer your own. Not that it was ever yours in the first place. But you at least ought to acknowledge of all people that your life is not your own. And so it is incumbent upon you to consider the desires of your master. As the hymn goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Or 1 Corinthians 6.20. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or Romans 14. Romans 14.7-8. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Do you realize that, Christian? Whether you live or whether you die, you are the Lord's. So that means it's incumbent upon you. How are you going to live your life in light of that? The plans that you are making, the purposes that you are are, that you are doing, right? The, the things that you are looking toward in the future, have you considered what the Lord's will is in it? Have you prayed about it? Have you sought counsel about it? Have you looked to His Word about it? Have you sought to humble yourself before Him in those things? Listen, it's easy, and the pragmatic thing is, right? And it's it's... It's natural to us when we have a problem before us, when we have a plan before us, what do we do? We say, well, what do I need to do to accomplish this? We do it at work all the time. I do it at work all the time, right? It's I have X amount to do. Okay, let me get to it. What do I need to do for that? What what, what is it going to take? Right? We can plan that way. We want a certain career. And in our mind, what do we think? What do I need to do for that? What education do I need for that? Who do I need to mentor with? Or who do I need to mentor me with? We want children. Hey, again, what's our plan? What do we need to do for that? How are we going to accomplish that? You notice the problem with all those statements? We, I, and never Lord. Lord, if it's your will. Again, in all this, it's not, I'm not saying, and James is not saying, that there is an incumbent upon us to do. Same with our sanctification, right? God empowers us to it. God instructs us in it. But there is incumbent upon us to do. But who are we relying on? And and, and here what we see, uh, what we see these merchant class doing is they're boasting in their arrogance, right? They're saying, I'm gonna do this. I have the I have the power, I have the authority, I have the strength, I have the wisdom, I have the knowledge, I I I I Brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot separate God from any aspect of your life. You are His, all of you. Not just during a Sunday morning hour, but also the Monday afternoon part and every other part after that and every part in between. Not just the times when you're in Bible study, but also the times when you're sitting at home in front of the TV. You are the Lord's. You are God's and never forget that. So you have to consider him in all your ways. All your planning must include him. Look unto him alone. And for those outside of Christ, all their purposes are under the sovereign rule of the Lord God too. And just because they may not believe that, and if that's you, just because you may not believe that, just because you don't think that you're under God's authority doesn't mean you aren't. You may not believe the Bible is true, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. And this will become clear to you on the day of judgment when you stand before him and he calls you to account for all of your evil ways. You will not escape. You cannot escape his justice. And so better the more to trust in him today to find the forgiveness of your sins and to walk in his will. Better today to do what James has already written in chapter 4. For instance, Uh, The first part of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Anything less is a missed sin. So let's see that lastly. A missed sin in verse 17. 
James writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And James gives us this general statement about sin, and it seems like he's talking about sins of omission. Uh, And just to clarify that, right, we know what sins of commission are. Those are sins we do, right? We hear the command, do not covet, and we say, I don't care that the command says do not covet, I want to covet. I want that. We hear the command to not do something and we do it. That's sin, right? Those are sins of commission. We have committed a sin. But there is also this category of sins of omission. That is, it is sinful to fail to do the good thing when we know we ought to do it. There are positive commands in the scripture. Love your neighbor is a positive command, right? That's something we are positively to do. And that's uh, probably a multifaceted statement there, right? More than one meaning on that word positively. It's something that we are to do. If we don't love our neighbor, if we don't do the right thing, though we know it is the right thing, we have sinned. And so how does this relate to the merchants and their seeking of profit? Well, maybe somewhere in here, and especially as we look at chapter 5 and the first portion there, as he talks to the rich non-Christian landowner. Um, Nowhere in this statement of the merchants, we're going to go there and we're going to make a profit, is an element of what they're going to do with that profit. And it's seeming, right, in their arrogance, they're talking about we're going to make a profit, we're going to do this, that the point of making a profit is for their own self, for their own reasons, uh, for their own purposes. There's no acknowledgement of what they are going to do with that prophet in a positive way. Uh, just as Jesus in his parable, right, to the, to the one who's going to build the bigger barns in Luke 12, 20 to 21, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, this is Jesus, right, outside of the parable, giving us the understanding of it. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So there Jesus says something about this rich person who has this surplus crop has done something evil because he isn't rich toward God, right? Because the the attitude of that person there in that parable was, right? Soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry, right? Enjoy it. Enjoy it for yourself. Our wealth is not for our own pleasures. Our profit is not to go toward bigger barns, but rather the right we ought to do. And in particular, I think what James has in mind here is loving our neighbor. This statement indeed seems like a transition to what he excoriates the rich non-Christian landowners in the next passage. And I say this as one who is entrenched in a culture that is wealthy. We are entrenched in a culture that is terribly wealthy. Because even the poor among us have more wealth than many people will ever have in their entire lifetimes in other parts of the world. There are so many needs here. And there are many, many needs outside of our own nation. So what is a Christian to do? Because I think on one aspect, right, we see all the needs and we're just overwhelmed. And so we like we we get paralyzed in decision making and say, well, I don't know where it's best to go. So I'm going to just not do anything. And we can bury our head in the sand and pretend we don't see the problems. We can keep making our plans and making our profit without consideration of the good we know to do. But that's the problem, brothers and sisters. Even if we can rightly argue, even if we can say, listen to this, listen closely here. Even if we can say, I don't know the specifics of what I need to do. We run into this problem that we do know we need to do good with what we have. So even if we can say, I don't know exactly what God wants me to do with this. If we do nothing... We have still failed. We have still sinned. We've committed a sin of omission because we know the right thing to do and we failed to do it. It is sin. 
That's what James says here, right? That's what the scripture says. Because here's the reality. We know what we ought to do. What is the first great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And what's the second? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's our neighbor? Right? That's one of the, that's what one of the uh, lawyers in Jesus' day, when the scribes, when the Pharisees, one of the self righteous, want to wiggle out of that question. Let's define neighbor very narrowly, and then we don't have to get into quite so much trouble. What is the Samaritan, the one who is often in the Jewish eyes an outcast, someone who is uh, sinful and outside of the people of God? What does the Samaritan do in the parable that Jesus gives? He expends such great quantity of money to help this one who is injured. And I don't know that we always see that in that parable, but understands he takes the injured man to an inn, gives him some money up front, and then tells the innkeeper, and whatever else you need to do for him to make sure he gets better, spend it and I'll repay you. That's a dangerous statement, isn't it? Because we could say, well, you know, he needs a new bed and so do all the other people here. So let's just get new beds for everybody. And oh, we could use a new paint job and that would really cheer him up. And, you know, when when the Samaritan comes back, the innkeeper could say, well, you know, we had a whole we had to have a whole renovation to really take care of this guy. So, you know, here's the bill. You can foot it. But that's the love. That's what a love of neighbor is, whatever it takes. When we fail to love, when we fail to share with the poor what we have, when we make our plans without consideration of God's commands, we sin. And it's not something we can overlook. This isn't something we can ignore. Because it's easy to forget the things we ought to do by focusing on the things we ought not to do. Right? It's easy to say, I, because listen, it's, we get caught up. Right? We get caught up in the things we shouldn't do. Right? We hear those more often. Uh, we look at the Ten Commandments and what do we hear? Do not. And we focus our whole lives on doing not. But we fail to do what we ought. We fail to do the right thing. The good thing we know to do. Christians, God calls you to do not, but he also calls you to do. And maybe what this means for us is this. Instead of planning on where we're going to make our next profit. Maybe we better plan what we're going to do with the profit we already have. So before we're looking to the future, we need to make sure that in the present, we're doing what we need to do. And if all that stings you, it does me too. God forgive us. James writes to address an arrogant self-confidence that ignores the Lord. Because there's this merchant class within the church, there's this Christian merchant class that cavalierly sets out for profit without considering that their very life, let alone their business ventures, depends on the will of the Lord. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is still true today. Your life and your plans depend on God. And God is not merely concerned with your planning, but also the outcomes of those things. Christians are to live in acknowledgement that their lives are not their own. Your life is not your own, Christian. What is your life? It's a mist. It's a vapor. And it's held in the hand of God. You live for God now. And this changes everything. And also, this is a little thing, by the way. Uh, It seems a lot to us. To say everything that I own, everything that I have, everything that I am is the Lord God's. That seems like that seems like everything, right? What do we have left? And yet, what, God, what does God promise us in return? How will He, with Christ, not also give us all things? How about an eternal way to glory? Do you realize you're an heir 
to the Lord God? That's what Romans 8 tells you, tells us. You're an heir to the Lord God, a co-heir with Christ. What does God own? You've already said it, right? Everything. We acknowledge that this it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us in this world to live this way. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we don't live this way. Right? We, we understand that. The Christian life is difficult. And I'm sorry if any pastor, any teacher, any preacher has ever told you contrary to that. That the Christian life is just some, oh, come on, come on up, shake a hand, get dunked in some water, and you're good to go. Life is fine. Life is rosy. It costs us our life. Right? What does Jesus say? Pick up your cross. Pick up the instrument of your death and follow me. Never believe a, a pastor if he says the Christian life is easy. Either he's misleading, he's got a purpose. Uh, I'm, I'm saying he probably has a purpose to saying it. Maybe he doesn't know what the Christian life is like himself, and so he says it. Christian life isn't easy. But boy, is it a glorious one. And there's an eternal way to glory to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why would we ever be satisfied with a trinket here when there's an eternal way to glory to come? So some of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to repent of your failure to acknowledge God in all your ways. You need to repent for failing Him and doing the things you know you ought to do. You have failed to do the good you know to do. You need to seek His forgiveness. You need to make new plans which include Him. You need to submit to God and humble yourself before Him. And we know, James has already told us, right? We know that in humble repentance... There is forgiveness of sins. For those of you who think you're in control of your own life, that your destiny is yours to shape, you are sorely mistaken. Because you too are under the sovereign rule of the Lord God, your Creator. He alone holds sway over your life. Your life and your ability to do anything is contingent upon Him and His mercy. For you who boast in yourself, your abilities, and fail to acknowledge God, you will find on the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord God to give an account for your life, that you have sinned against Him. You have sinned against a holy God. You will find that all of your profit, all of your self-confidence, all of your self-centered life will reap for you nothing less than the eternal justice of a holy God. Because sin demands repayment. Sin demands death. And in all of the evils that you commit in life, that you omit in life, those of thought and word and deed, you will find that death, you will find eternal judgment of your soul in hell. Yet, there is still time. As you yet draw breath, there is time to submit to the Lord that He may exalt you. If you yet draw breath, it is a mercy of God given to you to repent, turn from sin, and turn to Him. Your life can be redeemed by the work of Christ Jesus. Because that's what Christ Jesus came to do. To redeem. To buy back for Himself, out of sin, a people for His own possession. Christ lived the life that you never could. He died the death that you should. He rose from the grave to defeat death and sin, and He ascended to the right hand of God, and He is waiting for the day when He is told to come and to collect His people, to gather Him to His side where we will be with Him forever. And you can be one of His people. You can be saved, but it takes turning from your sin turning to God in Christ and trusting in Him. It takes confession of your sin, repenting of it. Do that today and you will be saved. And then acknowledge Him in all your ways. Submit your life and plans to Him. Seek Him in all things. Let's pray. O oh, Father in heaven, Father, forgive us our sins. 
God, forgive us for the evils that we have committed against you. God, forgive us for the, for the good that we have omitted in doing. Father, forgive us for the vain boasting and arrogance that discounts your will, your ways, what you have commanded. Father, forgive us. Even as it may be natural to us, you have called us in Christ to to something better, to put off the old man and to put on the new man. You have called us to walk before you in holiness. To fear you and trust you. Father, we confess that we do not always do this. And God, we pray uh, that you would guide and lead us. Father, that those things that are set before us, that we would understand what it is your will in them. Father, that the plans that we are even now making for the furthering of our uh, business and work interests, for the furthering of our family, the furthering of our education, uh, the furthering, uh, Lord God, of even of this church, that it would be pleasing in your sight. Father, that we would understand what your will is in these things and we would seek you in it. Father, that we would understand as even your servant Moses confessed as he was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness that if you do not go up with us, if you are not with us, if you are not there by us, we don't want to go. We need your grace and your mercy. We need your strength and power. We need your provision. Father, we need your wisdom and all these things. We want to be near to you and draw near to you. Father, we thank you that you'll draw near to us. Not because we are worthy, not because we have done good enough, not because we have earned or merited anything. But because you love us. Because you show us your favor. Because you have mercy on us and you you remember our frame. You know that we're dust, mist. So, Lord, God, lead us and guide us. And, Father, we pray for those who don't know you, those who in their arrogance make plans without you. God, have mercy on them. Father, send your spirit into them to convict them of their sin, that they may repent and turn to you and glorify your name in every way. Father, give us boldness to speak these words. God, be glorified in us, your people, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen.